brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target, and uh, yeah, we're excited to have on Hugh Slatter. It's been a long time since, really, Timothy back since we've had a guy who served in Africa, the African military on the podcast. And uh, there, there is no African military. Well, you know what I mean. He was he was in Zimbabwe. <laughs> he was an air, air vice marshal uh, there. Yes, I'm he, saying he's someone who served in Africa. He served, you know what I mean? he served in an African military. That's yes. true. How dare you? Trying to make me look like an asshole. Um, no, I'm excited for it to have him on. Um, and also POW, um, which it's a pretty crazy story in his book that he it, talks yeah, about. Yeah, so. it's wild. The, um, I had heard of this uh, gentleman, uh, Hugh Slatter, because Tim Bax, who, you know, a previous guest who served in the Salute Scouts, had said, you know, this is a must-read book. you got to take a look at this. So uh, I was like, okay, I mean... Tim Bax recommends him, then we'll definitely hit him up. Yeah, and Tim was a great guest. I, I loved having yeah, him. I'd, I'd like to have him back on at some point. Yeah, we, we should. We definitely should. Um, so I guess the first order of business is the March for Our Lives. You were at the March for Our Lives rally in New York, so you have a pretty objective standpoint of what went on as opposed to, you know, most of us who just saw it on TV. Well, as far as what, yeah, was going on at that protest or that march um yeah we were out there filming a documentary you and and daniel bezier right yeah um it'll uh it'll be a short documentary like 15 minutes or so and and really just the concept behind it is that um it's really just us going around and interviewing people and trying to interview as many different types of people uh with as many different viewpoints as we can and then kind of put that together into a short piece um, so, you know, conceptually, instead of having, you know, a talking head or even someone like myself interpreting what the march was about, you're just hearing directly from the people who are there. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited. I think it'll actually be, you know, a meaningful piece when when it's all put together. Well, what was your impression? Because people who listen to the to the podcast, read your articles, they know your feelings. You're a very pro Second Amendment guy. Uh you, you've spoke in length about that you don't think banning an AR-15, which seems no. to be like their big thing, uh, is going to make any difference. So, I mean, just... But you were objective interviewing these They're, people. Yeah, I was just trying to ask people questions and, and try to have them articulate their viewpoints. And um, I, I think there there's definitely a diversity of viewpoints uh, amongst the people who are out there that day and what they feel should be done. Um, I think really across the board uh, to include the uh, the pro-Trump people, the pro-NRA people we talked to. Um, all, everybody seems to be in favor of stronger background checks. Um, they think we can do better there. They think we do better with mental health issues. 
Um, now then you get into some other issues and there's a divide. Even when you, even the people who are pro gun control, they have different views about what should be done. There are some people who think we should ban, uh, assault weapons. There are some people who think we should do away with the AR 15. There's no reason for people to have guns like that. At least on Twitter, there's some people who think we should ban all weapons. And you do talk to some, yeah, we talked to some of those people. Trending on Twitter right now. I think as I was on Twitter, it was like ban I'm going to look right now because I saw that it was like the number one thing on Twitter trending. So it's not They're, hyperbole to say that there's people who no, they, they they were out there for sure. Um, and I would say that was like the minority viewpoint. There you go. Repeal the Second Amendment is one of the main things trending on Twitter right now. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I couldn't take like a census of everyone at the march. It was pretty big, but. I don't think most people outright wanted to ban guns, although there were some people who feel that way, that we should just take away everybody's guns. And um, and I even talked to those people. I was like, you know, I actually I tried to mention this with everyone. I was like, what do you think about this um, cultural schism in America? Because, you know, you, the person I'm talking to at the march, you're a native New Yorker. Like, you don't know anything about guns or gun culture um, and, and when you say native New Yorker, we should say New York City because people upstate, I sometimes get those emails, like upstate New York people love their guns. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a totally different culture. Um, yeah, I'm talking about people who were, you know, live in New York City and have been here pretty much their whole lives. Um, they don't understand what it's like for somebody living in, you know, central Georgia where you have guns in the house and that's normal. And, you know, when you're 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever, your dad teaches you how to shoot a rifle and, you know, you go shoot guns in your backyard, you go hunting, whatever. I mean, it's just a totally different culture. The people like that, they don't think twice about guns. They don't see it as a, as a, as a big issue. Um, and it'd be like telling someone in, in, you know, in those areas about fashion week in New York City. It'd be like, yeah, what? or like riding the subway or something like that. It's like <laughs> yeah. they, they would have no conception of that at all. Um, and it's not that there are bad people. We're not talking about very bad, different bad people. We're just saying that, you know, there is a cultural divide in this country and uh, between urban and rural uh, areas and those people are going to have different types of views about things. And I tried to bring that up to people. It's like, what do you think about that? And some of them were like, no, I understand that, you know, there are people elsewhere in America and they feel it's their right. And, you know, I don't want to take away their guns. You know, I just want some more restrictions so that crazy people can't get a hold of weapons. Um, and then there's other people I talk to who are like, I don't care what they think. We need to yeah. take away all the guns. <laughs> there, there is, you know, and I could say this as a native New Yorker, like there is definitely a, an elitist attitude of some people on the coast. Oh, you think? Of, yeah, of just <laughs> of fuck middle America. They're all backwards. I, they're all racists. They're yeah. all rednecks. Uh, I've sat at dinner parties in New York, and I have heard like the most asinine things said about what's going on in the rest of this country. Uh, and it would be, it's just one of those weird contradictions where like, you'll have people, you'll have a bunch of white people sitting around debating about how non-racist they are. And it's like, <laughs> this is just hilarious. Like yeah. there's a bunch of affluent white people talking about how non-racist they are. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Um, but then they'll sit there and talk all kinds of, uh, you know, talk about white trash and rednecks and racists. And it's like, you don't even have a clue what you're talking about. You've never gone to these places. You've never met these people. And I'm sure there's there's racism in, in middle America. There's no question about that. But to just like I lived in the South for eight years and it just like categorically, you know, paint the, all those people with a, a 
broad brush that they're all racists and they're all backwards idiots. I mean, that's just so offensive and ridiculous. I don't even know, like... You're just an idiot if you believe that. I think it's from watching TV and watching Watching news. Duck Dynasty? Yeah. I, I also, you know, I, I've heard white people who have racist attitudes towards black people who don't really hang out in areas like that. It's something yeah. from, like, yeah. watching BET. This is how every black person acts. Or li- listening no? to, uh, you know, like, white supremacists in, in central and in the middle middle states of America talk about how they hate the Jews. And it's like, <laughs> have you ever met a Jew? Yeah. Do, do you know any Jews? Like, well, then how, the, how do you hate these people? You don't know anything about them. Yeah. Very true. So here was my firsthand experience of the March for Our Lives. I was in Delray Beach, Florida, uh, living it up, enjoying life. <laughs> and With a mojito in one hand and a Cuban cigar. Yeah, no, I, I was actually just, when, it, when this happened, I was at a Starbucks, but I saw across the street, there was uh, there was marching probably like a dozen senior citizens with like anti-gun signs and March for Our Lives wow. signs. And next to me were like young teenage girls, and one of them goes, "Yes," as you know, is the most overused phrase of. Uh, you're looking at me like I'm nuts. The, the, the like Y A S S. That's what they all say now. It's well, like fuck the, does that mean? It means yes, but it's become it's become like the phrase. Of, you're you're, huh. you're not listening to enough. I guess young teenage girls on Twitter, or or fucking girls your age on Twitter. But anyway. And then one of them turned and was like, I think the problem is the people, not the guns. And then it was like, I think it's a little bit of both. And it made me realize, like, this is what your average 16-year-old girl's opinion of this issue is. They're not very well informed on the Second Amendment. Uh, Which, dude, totally understandable. Which makes me uh, sensitive to the fact that on Twitter, I would say, people who are more on our side are calling these kids Nazis and, and are like really vilifying them for having a difference of opinion. And the reason I think that's a really stupid argument to make for one, we always call out people when they say, Oh, Donald Trump is literally Hitler. Well, you're those same people are doing the exact same thing when you're calling these kids Nazis and keep in mind people, including myself, when you're 16, 17 or more liberal, I was way more, left wing and eventually i you know my views evolved uh, very much because of people like ron paul when he ran for president like what he said resonated with me but keep in mind as these kids get older and their opinions on issues evolve they're not going to want to team up with the people who called them nazis yeah well they're not going to be millennial social justice warriors forever they're going to grow up some of them may be but some some of them them may not be a lot of them are going to go and they're going to you know get jobs and join the workforce and they're going to pay taxes and their political views are going to change over time i mean there's tons of studies that show how young people are generally more liberal and people become more conservative as they get older um you know these kids i mean it is what it is i mean when you're young you don't have a lot of knowledge and it's not because you're a bad person how could you you you're not old enough to acquire all this knowledge and to have all these experiences doesn't mean they're bad no um you know and you also think you know far more at that of course. age than you do i, I because you don't know what you don't know yeah yeah, yeah yeah we were all stupid at you know or not stupid but kind of ignorant at 16 and, uh, you know, when you're a young person, you're filled with passionate conviction. And, you know, as you get older, you start to have, I think, uh, more doubts because you realize how much you don't know in life. But I am disappointed that people our age and older 
don't have the foresight to say, you know what, maybe it doesn't make sense to malign these people as Nazis and, right. and compare, you know, them like raising a fist on stage to the, you know, Sieg Heil. Like, I, I think it's really, it's it's both childish it's and, immature, yeah. and strategically, if you're trying to convince these people to come to your side, it's not a very good strategy. Well, that's how I, I've always seen, you know, this issue. Uh, um, the way a lot of gun owners or, or pro second amendment people behave is just immature. I mean, we'll have to call it what it is. I mean, I, I see them, you know, posting all this wild stuff on social media and it's like, look, you're the gun owner. You're the one advocating for civil rights. I, you have to be the adult in the room. And even when the other side acts stupid and they say dumb things, it's okay to counter that. But running around with all this sort of vitriolic talk and maligning people like this and, you know, like that whole just like gun bro culture and these people, I'm against everything they stand for. It's just kind of immature and it also lacks a kind of pragmatism. Um, And I I don't think those words have ever been very well received by the people I direct them to. I'm just pointing out that, you know, we should be the adults in the room. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go, go down to their level just because some kids or, or some anti-gun people are acting stupid. We shouldn't like replicate that or mirror their behavior. Yeah. And, and engage them in conversation the way that you did, because yeah. it's very likely someone spoke to you who was like level-headed and they're like, you know what? That guy made some sense and it'll resonate with them at some and, point. And you, I mean, it was interesting because I went and I tried to interview everyone in, in a objective way without you know projecting my thoughts or opinions on them and i was just stunned to see that uh the pro-trump nra folks and the uh the gun control marchers actually agreed on on a very fundamental issue about background checks and they could probably work together on that issue but if you were at the march at that moment what was going on is these two groups were yelling at each other fuck you no fuck you and they're screaming at each other and hurling insults um so it's uh, it's ironic, and you know there's a lot of uh, groupthink taking place. I'm sure on both sides, and uh, that's unfortunate because they can probably work together on some issues. Not all issues. There's some things they're always going to disagree on, um, but that's you know that signals a, a uh, lost opportunity. I'm wondering what the age demo was because this was a rally allegedly they're saying you know started by kids basically in high school. But there are definitely organizers at the top who are older. Uh, was it a younger crowd? Was it an older crowd? Hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it was a pretty even mix. There were definitely quite a few young people there. And I interviewed, um, you know, some girls in high school who were there with their parents. Um, and uh, But there were also older folks, you know, older New Yorkers who came out. There were people who uh, some people took the train in from Connecticut or Long Island. So a lot were from here from the city. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it was probably a pretty even, uh, you know, breakdown as far as age. So it was a massive rally throughout the country looking at the photos of D.C., New York, everywhere. Do, do you think this is going to change anything or that it was just a rally? No, I don't, I don't think this particular rally is going to change anything. Um, you know, I understand the, uh, you know, these young people are saying now is the moment, now it's going to happen. I, I don't think so. But what I, this is a trend that I, I noticed, and 
my perhaps my one of my bigger criticisms of the left overall is that they um, they tend to engage in these sort of like emotional expressions, particularly at these protests and marches. Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, yeah. all these things. They don't come together. They don't mobilize around policy reforms. It's just kind of, I'm going to go out and express myself, and then I'm going to go back home and everything goes back to normal. And um, I'm going to tweet about it. What I was seeing at that march was a lot of people with signs and a lot of people saying, you know, thoughts and prayers is not enough. Um, it's not enough just to be an activist. You know, we have to organize around policy reform. We have to po- we have to push our elected representatives um, on spe- specific policy issues. And I think that could signal um, perhaps some sort of maturing or a, a realization of how to manipulate the political process on tr- in terms of the American left. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if these um, protest movements are able to mobilize people towards political change in a more substantial, uh, pragmatic way than they have been in the past, where it's like, oh, we're going to have this protest and we're going to express ourselves and have this sort of cathartic moment and nothing changes. I get the sense that they're kind of waking up to the futility of that. And and also to keep in mind that these are people in, in New York, and even if they are voting, the way things currently are, we have a very left-wing mayor of New York City. Yeah. We have a left-wing governor of New York City. So, like, the, people are voting with, with these policies in mind, but that this is the way New York is. Right. So it's a lot of preaching to the choir. Yeah. What they're saying isn't necessarily resonating to the Midwest, but yeah, no, I I don't think it is. And I'm not sure that it ever will. Yeah. The only thing that has changed recently in terms of gun laws, that's kind of interesting. And I guess it's going sort of under the radar because of this March was Trump banning, um, Bump stocks. Yeah. Which, was that an executive order? I, I, I'm not sure, actually. I'd have to go and look I it think. up myself. But it does seem that there's going to be some kind of movement to do away with bump stocks, which, I mean, doesn't bother me any. I, I you know, I fired, I used one um, out at, uh, actually out at the SHOT Show at Range Day one year. And, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it struck me as kind of like a gimmick or a toy, you know, something you take out to the range and play with. And, unfortunately, that one nutcase in las vegas used it to mow down a lot of people in uh out out at that concert um i mean the bump stock and bump firing it's kind of a way it's a loophole around the law you know the law says you can't make modifications internal modifications to your weapon to make it fully automatic what they did was they found an external way an external modification to make the weapon fully automatic um so it's always been one of those things that you know it's like kind of getting around the intent of the law um, so I don't really have a problem with them closing that loophole. That's not something that really bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's the only thing I guess that, that you could say that is changing in terms of gun laws. Um, I think there's probably some people angry at Trump because they believed him to be a very pro second amendment guy. And this is not seen as a pro second amendment action. With Trump, it's so hard to know. I mean, he'll go and he'll say things, you know, you remember that comment he made, like, look, I'm in favor of taking the guns first and then due process. I mean, and then he'll reverse course two days later and say something totally different. So, I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I I agree. Oh, and and then the other thing, um, 
uh, your opinion on this. I know you always say, I don't really care if Trump is golfing and you think these are non-issues. I don't even care if he has sex with porn stars. It doesn't bother, <laughs> that doesn't bother me. Yeah, I kind of wish you would just uh, admit to it. Be like, hell yeah, you know, I, I would actually respect that. But um, the reason I, I mentioned that, though, is there were some people saying that he should have at least been uh, I get doing something as these marches were going on and hearing out these protesters and he was golfing that day. Like, what was he supposed to do? I don't know. I, but that that's some people are outraged over the fact that he was golfing and on a day of a major protest. People are outraged over everything. I mean, yes, they are. You know, what, what's what was he <laughs> was he supposed to like wade into the middle of one of the marches and be like, "Here be America," with like like stand up on a podium like Leonidas? <laughs> I mean, what, what was he supposed to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, what did when all those other protests went on? What was Obama doing? I guess people are wondering: Is he hearing out these protesters? Is he taking their views seriously because they they are Americans? As for the ones who are of age, they are voting. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. It depends on your point of view. I mean, this is the United States where, you know, uh, a democratic republic. We don't have mob rule. I mean, the mob out on the streets can does not, you know, make legislation. Thank God for that, because there are all kinds of nutty things that people, especially large groups of people, when they come together, they tend to do, you know, and believe some silly things. Um, so, I mean, the, the real, I guess, point or value from the, the perspective of the marchers is to influence who we elect to Congress and the Senate and, you know, ultimately the president, the, the uh, president as well. Um, I don't know. Who cares? It's a march. You know, what, what's the president supposed to do? I mean, this is like we criticize presidents who make decisions ba- based on uh, polls. Sure. Playing a popularity contest like, oh, 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 you know, like trying to game Gallup polls, you know. So, I mean, OK, there's a march. Is the president supposed to, like, change his opinion because of that? Yeah. I don't I don't really think that's how our country should work. So I was at Occupy Wall Street with Mike Binns covering that for WellCal when that went down, and you saw some crazy people out there. New York City, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> any rally, you see some nut jobs. So I'm wondering, like, who was the biggest nut job that you saw? Um, I didn't interview somebody, anyone who's too crazy. I interviewed, uh, I, I did interview one woman who uh, went on about Obama's shadow government and how, you know, most of the protesters were paid by George Soros, um, you know, that kind of conspiracy theory stuff. Um, but I, I didn't, I don't think I interviewed anyone who was like totally like, like saying just like wazoo, gonzo stuff other than that. I'm, All sure, right. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were out there. I interviewed yeah. about 20 people out of a protest that had like over 100,000 people, uh, I believe. So it's not exactly a statistically significant. Yeah, no, no, size. no. I just was interested because I, I always feel like there's crazy people out there that are just fun to talk to. There was uh, actually in front of Trump Tower. There was a, a fight. There was a scuffle um, between one of the gun control people and uh, some dude who ran out there with a flag with an AR-15 on it. And it said something like, come and take them or something like that. And uh, they got into a shoving match out there. And NYPD came and broke it up real quick. Is there? Vi- I'm sure there's video of that, right? Maybe somebody has it on video. It actually went down so quickly that we didn't get it on tape, unfortunately. Got you. All right. Well, uh, looking forward to that. It'll be on probably the Spec Ops channel, right? Yes. This is our TV yep. channel. Um, all right. Well, with that, we should get over to Hugh Slatter. Right on. So on with us is Air Vice Marshal Hugh Slatter, former chief of staff of the Air Force of Zimbabwe, 
Uh, and the author of Pilot Prisoner Patriot, One Man's Triumph Over Torture and Tragedy. And it's just a real honor to have on someone who served in the military there in Zimbabwe. We don't get to speak to people from that side of the world very often. Um, Tim Bax was the last guy that we did, who I know spoke highly of your book. Um, and I should throw out there, the book is available exclusively at HughSlatter.com, either signed or unsigned. So we're looking forward to getting into it. And it's a honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Ian and Jack. I'm delighted to be on the show, and uh, I appreciate it. The book has been a long time coming. Um, I've thought about it for a long time, but only actually put pen to paper when my friends in Africa said, Hugh, what, what do you do in the States? You've been gone a long time. And my American friends said, well, Hugh, what did you do in Africa? We don't know much about it. So I decided <laughs> then that's, that's the time to write a book that would hopefully appeal to both sides. And it does have a military back, background to it, obviously, because that was my life in Africa. But thank you for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Hugh. You know, after I saw uh, Tim Bax endorsing your book, I was like, okay, we definitely have to get this gentleman on. And, you know, it's very rare that, you know, we cover a lot of military topics, but it's very rare that you get to talk to somebody who served in a uh, Air Force in Africa. Um, I can't recall reading a book or seeing an interview about uh, somebody who served in the Rhodesian uh, Air Force. So this is really a, a you know unique experience for us as well. Well, good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy, and I hope that those who have looked at the book, I've, I've had some good comments on the book, obviously. And before we get into that, let me just mention Tim Bax for a minute. I mean, there's a warrior and a hero from our part of the world who's had this remarkable uh, life going through the military and the SAS, the Special Air Services, and then the Salu Scouts, uh, a unique regiment in, in our part of the world. And Tim has written a couple of good books, I'm sure you know. And, um, yes. He, he's, uh, he's, he's a fine man, so he's, uh, he did give me a kind sort of review on the book, and I appreciate that, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> you know, we're definitely going to have to get Tim back on the show at some point, because I, I read his first book, but I have yet to read his second book. Um, so I'm going to have to give that a read. But with that, I'm, uh, I'm still in the process of reading your book, and I'm really enjoying it so far. And, um, of course, this is a memoir. So, I mean, I guess the, the right place to start is to ask you if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your upbringing in Rhodesia. And it, it sounds almost like a, uh, like a paradise, you know, where, where you grew up in that time period. Yeah, I think it was. I think I'll start off by saying that I didn't appreciate what an idyllic lifestyle we had in those days. I was a young, a young boy growing up in Southern Africa. Uh, we, were, we were well governed, a sensible government. The country was well run. It was a net exporter of goods, uh, especially agricultural products and minerals. We had plenty of all that stuff. So the schools were based on the British system, and the discipline was very strict. I mean, it was not unusual to get caned uh, for, for not doing your homework or something. But I have no emotional scarring. That's the funny thing. All these people say, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's probably quite right. So. Uh, but, but the growing up was, was good. My father had a farm up in the mountains, and um, we used to uh, spend holidays up there, and my father taught me to shoot and fish early on in life. I mean, I, I think I mentioned in the book I had a rifle and a shotgun above my bed every night when I was 10 years old, and that was just to, uh, to shoot for the pot and for protection in case there was any... There were some nasty animals around there. Uh, no lions or elephants left, but there were leopards and... Uh, wild boar and various things like that. So you have to be careful. And it was fun. It was exciting. 
It's just incredible for us to think about growing up in America and how different it was for, you know, people like yourself. And I think Tim Bax was talking about growing up. I can't recall. I think it was Tanzania, maybe, where he, he grew up as a young boy. And there's these stories yeah. about wild animals coming right up to the house and having to fire <laughs> off your rifle to scare them away. Yeah, yeah. I think Tim was Tanzania, right? And I think he also spent a bit of time in Kenya, but I think his early days were Tanzania and that area, yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is a great book. I enjoyed that book so much, The Three Sips of Gin. I mean, I've, I've read it twice, and each time I've enjoyed it immensely. And you also talk about your uh, your grandfather, um, who lived the, the ripe old age of 99, and he was you know really a part of the, the history of South Africa and Rhodesia, wasn't he? He certainly was. Um, you know, he came up to Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, as it was then, or became southern Rhodesia, with the Pioneer Column. And he was a remarkable man. Uh, he fought in the Zulu Wars, survived that dreadful massacre at Isandwana, where the regiment was wiped out. And the only reason he was spared is he was out on patrol with Lord Chelmsford. And then he managed to get away to Rorke's Drift. That's a famous name in South African history. Mm -hmm. And survived the night there and then continued. So, yeah, he was, a, he was an interesting man. And at 97 years old, he used to tend a seven-acre garden all on his own. It's incredible. And the only reason he died at 99 was because he fell and broke his hip. And, of course, in those days, they didn't know what to do about that. And when he realized he was going to be bedridden, he just kind of gave up. It's amazing. And yeah. uh, do you want to talk a little bit then about uh, how you came into the military service? Sure. I was, um, I'd actually gone down to college in South Africa and uh, wasn't doing very well there. Didn't get on well with my professor. <laughs> and uh, towards the end of the year, just decided I'm going to jump on a motorbike and go home and figure out what to do. And my parents were very good. They didn't lambaste me or give me a hard time. They just said, well, figure out what you want to do. So I took some part-time work at the archives and uh, saw some advertisements for flying in the Air Force and decided I'd give it a go. And long story made short, ended up being given a letter of offer and joining the Air Force. That was in 1962 when I was 19 years old then. So went off and did all this flying, which was, uh, which was fun. It was fun until people were shooting back at you. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what airframes were you trained on? <clears throat> the early training we did on uh, an aircraft called the Percival Provost, which was a big nine-cylinder radial uh, uh, airplane, two-seater, a, a difficult airplane to fly. It required a lot of rudder. It was a tail dragger, so landing it was tricky, particularly in crosswinds. But if you could fly the Provost and graduate through what was our basic flying school, you could probably fly most most airplanes. And then on the advanced flying, we went on to the Vampire Jet. There was a twin-seater for advanced flying. And then when we were doing weapons training, there was a single-seater as well, the FB-9. They were, they were good airframes, solid, old, of course. But... Um, and then the other airplanes that were operational were was the Hunter. I think you've probably heard of the Hawker Hunter, mm -hmm. the famous British fighter in the mold of the Sabre. And then we had helicopters and transport and so on like that. But we were a very small air force. I mean, we were probably just over 100 airplanes and eight squadrons. So it was, uh, it was we, uh, we called it a pocket air force. And it was a, a potent little air force. It, it, it saved a lot of the country's problems during the war, but it wasn't enough to save the country from extinction, as I know it. And in those early years when you were learning to fly, um, it was still a peacetime army. You know, hostilities hadn't ramped up. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that period of time before the war really started in earnest? 
Yeah, although it wasn't really very long before the war started. Um, you know, I graduated with wings in 1963, mm -hmm. and in 1965, we were already getting reports of incursions into the country from the north. Um, so we would fly reckeys uh, in, in, in the provost as well, actually. You could do four hours endurance and get half of the border done, you know, flying and checking what's going on. And, and the war didn't ramp up really until the early 70s. Um, and then, of course, the terrorist forces were being uh, supplied and trained by Russia and China, and more and more their numbers, you know, kids were being kidnapped in the villages and carried across the border and forced into training. Yep. Now, um, maybe some of them went willingly, but a lot of them did not. Anyway, long story made short, the war started ramping up, both in terms of uh, the equipment we were up against and the numbers we were up against. Uh and for people who maybe are not familiar, do you want to describe the Rhodesian Bush War as we know it today and, and what that conflict was about and why it came about? And I'm, I'm sure a lot of Americans are probably just hearing about this for the first time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little complex, but I'll try and keep it uh, brief and simple. Uh, Rhodesia was part of um, the British colonies in Africa, and some of the other colonies were granted their independence on the basis of majority rule, uh, but Southern Rhodesia was not. And so Southern Rhodesia or Rhodesia proclaimed its independence the same way that you guys did in 1776, mm -hmm. but you managed to make it stick and we couldn't. So, you know, Britain went running off to the United Nations and uh, bleating and getting everything lined up against us with sanctions. So we ended up in this war fighting against extreme black elements. There were black elements. A lot of people confuse Rhodesia with South Africa. We did not have an apartheid system right. of government. We had a multiracial society. Uh, there was a, a, a qualified franchise. You had to earn X amount of dollars or own land or pay taxes or whatever it was or have a certain level of education. So it was not one man, one vote, and Britain was pushing for this. Uh, did nothing to help us, and eventually the world descended on us, and most of the world sponsored the so-called freedom fighters. And I didn't consider them freedom fighters. I don't consider anyone who murders farmers and their families in their beds at night a freedom fighter. I consider them a cowardly terrorist. Well, they were communist so, forces. Yes, they were backed by, by Russia in the north uh, and by China in the east, Mozambique, uh, out of Zambia in the north. And, and they, they, were, they were pretty well supplied. I mean, they had decent weaponry and it got better and better as time went on. They ended up with... Um, Strela, you know, the SAM-7 missile, uh, ground-to-air, low-level stuff. So we lost some airplanes, and uh, the war became harder and harder. But the biggest thing that hurt us was that um, we had no oil. Uh, we had no natural oil in the country. South Africa was the only country that agreed to supply us with oil. Uh, but then the pressure was put on South Africa via the United Nations and Dr. Kissinger and other people who seemed to spend five minutes in Africa and think they were instant experts on Africa. So long story made short, sat down at a political settlement conference in London called the Lancaster House Agreement, uh, signed with the extreme elements of the of Zebra, the armed forces from the north, and Zanla, the armed forces from the east. And basically it was on, uh, on a ceasefire basis while there was a so-called election, so-called election, I say it like that, because there was a lot of intimidation. It's very easy to intimidate uh, people who are out in the tribe lands and trust lands and yes. to the extent that people's noses were cut off or ears were cut off or tongues were pulled out if they didn't support the, the extremists. 
So end of the day, this um, gentleman by the name of Robert Mugabe was elected prime minister. And actually, my first dealings with him were fine. He was a gentleman. He was courteous. He asked good questions. He listened. He always thanked me for his briefings. And it took some years before he started um, becoming a despot. And I don't know what triggered that. Well, before we, before we get to the, uh, the transition into Zimbabwe, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your um, career in the Rhodesian Air Force and describe uh, some of the operations or missions uh, that are most memorable to you um, just before we skip too far ahead into the future. Okay. I was on 7 Squadron, which was the helicopter squadron, supporting our ground forces in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, when there were operations going on, and normally it would be a question of us having a couple of helicopters deployed to the front line wherever our ground forces were operating. For the RLI? Say, uh, our ground forces were awesome. We had some of the most, well, some of the finest fighting soldiers that I have certainly ever come across, the RLI, the SAS, the Salu Scouts. So it was always a privilege to operate with them, and um, it was normally uh, tracking and finding terrorist groups who were in the country. And then only later on did we get into going external and attacking the big camps, and that was where people like Tim Bax and Thomas Vessels and those guys from the SAS and Graham Wilson and a couple of other heroes uh, really shone. So it, it developed quicker than we were expecting, I guess. So 7th Squadron I did some time on. Then two squadron, which was the vampires in close support with heavier weaponry of our troops. If we were going to do a, a, an attack on a large camp, we'd normally send in Canberra's to do some bombing. And of course, our front line of own troops would be pretty close by, so we had to be pretty careful. And then after we'd put in an airstrike, our ground forces would go in and just kind of tidy up, you know. And uh, I guess in some ways, I really don't know, but I imagined it was, some of the stuff was almost like um, our American forces had to fight in Vietnam. I, I, if I understand correctly, you're saying that you made the transition from flying fixed wing to rotary wing later in the war? Yeah, you know, because we were a small outfit, it was kind of fun. We only had eight squadrons, and I think I operated on four different squadrons. And One of them was piston, two of them were jet, and one was rotary wing. You know, so it was, it was always interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that like uh, trying, inserting troops? you know, by rotary wing in the Bush war. I mean, it must, it's from some of the accounts I've read from, you know, the RLI or SAS, it sounds like it was pretty hairy. Yeah, and I think it got hairier. You know, in my day, they were small groups we were operating against. And of course, they were shooting at you, but they were shooting with primitive weaponry. Later on, when they had more sophisticated weaponry and there were more of them, it became hairier and hairier. And I have the highest regard for our troops who'd uh, be going into these hot zones and you know, we would get in and get out uh, and then stand by to extract them if need, but you ought to extract, sadly, our wounded or even our dead. It was, um, it was, a, it was a rough time. It's, uh, but the difference is that we were fighting for our own country and our hearts were, were solidly in it, you know. And please correct my pronunciation if I'm wrong, but you were flying the Alouette uh, 3, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. yes. Yeah, the Alouette 3, and that was a fine helicopter. We could carry four or five troops. Uh, we eventually got around to mounting a 20 mil cannon on it and uh, twin Brownings. So it was pretty potent. You could be dropping off some troops and laying down some pretty intense ground fire. It was a, it was a, a very effective close support machine. Did you participate in uh, fire force operations with uh, the RLI? Yes. Yeah. We were just starting the fire force concept while I was on that squadron. 
It was very effective, and it became uh, a very slick operation. When I was running the eastern operational area, uh, the fire force concept was uh, you had you had fire forces based at all the major airfields, and the fire force was normally four four trooping helicopters or three trooping helicopters and a gunship, or even four trooping helicopters and a gunship. And you were on call the whole time, and you were based with the RLI at a, at a camp, and you could get airborne in 10 or 15 minutes to respond to a sighting. Or if the big ops were planned, you were called in for the planning, and then you'd congregate somewhere with, with all the helicopters and all the ground forces, and that's when we started going external. And for the people who don't quite know, you know about the war, I just point out that fire force operations are still seen as perhaps a high water watermark for you know maneuver warfare, light infantry warfare, and the way that it combined both air and ground attacks. Yeah, I think what happened because again we were such a small outfit, and you know we we got to know our army counterparts uh, very well. We were we were camped together, we fought together. Um, and it wouldn't be unusual to go out uh, uh, on an operation and, and to find that you knew uh, all the army commanders in, in the same operation. You knew a lot of the troops. Uh, you know, it was, it was a very close teamwork, and it worked exceptionally well because of that. Because of the camaraderie and rapport, since you all knew each other so well. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that was tough when you lost your buddies, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, we got on with it again. There was no, no time to waste. We just did the best we could. And we get into, you know, the final years of the war and, you know, sadly, everything that we know happened now. Um, do you want to describe those, you know, the, those winding down years and the, the transition into what we now call Zimbabwe? Yeah, um, I would say the, the winding down was pretty abrupt, quite honestly, because mm-hmm. we were mounting heavy operations externally in late 79 even, uh, while the Lancaster House talks were going on to, you know, set up the so-called election. And then all of a sudden the Lancaster House agreement came out and uh, British monitoring forces came into the country to monitor the election, uh, monitor the ceasefire. And then I would say in a period of four months, it was all over. It was as quick as that. So winding down was, was pretty rapid, actually. Well, I, I understand you were an airman, of course, but I, what, what was your feelings and your emotions uh, and, and political thoughts, I suppose, at this time? Well, you know, we, we were an apolitical force, which means that we supported the government of the day. And um, we were a... a responsible, sustainable government under under the Rhodesian government, under Ian Smith, and the country worked. Uh, there was, um, were we perfect? Not by any manner of means, but we were on a path that would guarantee wider representation by the majority. Right. And, and that path was obviously not fast enough for Britain, but certainly not fast enough for the extreme elements of, of the uh, Zandler and Zebra political uh, crowd. So, it's, I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of concern about handing the country over to majority rule. And it seemed for a year or two it would probably be okay, and then it started into this rapid decline. I don't know if you followed what happened to the currency. Inflation in Zimbabwe became uh, a quadrillion percent. I mean, that's 16 zeros, if I'm thinking rightly. Because uh, they just kept printing currency. Yeah, so, you know, the, the country descended into ruin, farms were confiscated, farmers were murdered and so on. So the history of that government has been 
chalk and cheese compared to the responsible government, the previous government, where the country worked. Uh, politically, it, it wasn't perfect, but it was on a good path. So I'm afraid now, I don't know how much you've studied of Zimbabwe, but the place is kind of a mess. There are very few farms, viable farms left. I don't know what happens to the mineral. China is in there uh, in spades. Uh, and uh, I don't know that Russia is there that much, but China is very active throughout uh, Southern Africa. What was it like for you personally making that transition from the Rhodesian Air Force to the Zimbabwe Air Force? Yeah, it, it was difficult, to be honest, because, um, you know, I was born in the country, and uh, my wife and I had these discussions, and I, and I have a lot of good friends who left at the time and said, we're not staying here, Hugh. And I decided, well, you can't fix something from afar. If you're going to f- try and fix something or have a positive influence, you'd better stay and get on with it and put up with the, with the rubbish and try and try and keep the Air Force viable. Well, I wasn't able to do that, as you know, because shortly thereafter I was arrested and falsely charged with all this, uh, these treasonous acts and thrown into jail and then deported. So I didn't get much of an opportunity. But the, the time when I was chief of staff um, was difficult. We were trying to integrate the, the Zebra and Zanda forces with what was left of our Rhodesian forces. Most of our army guys and special forces left and I think that was probably understandable because no one was sure if there was going to be any vindictiveness on the part of the new government. Uh, as it turns out, there wasn't. But uh, the, the, our, our Rhodesian security forces were decimated, and the security forces were taken over really by, by Zandler mostly and Zipra. And, of course, they, they swore allegiance to a political party, not, not to the government of the day. Could you talk then about uh, what you had mentioned about how you were arrested on false charges, and it sounds like you were essentially a political prisoner. Yeah, well, I I was actually on vacation up in the mountainous district uh, and um, doing some fishing, and I got a phone call from my director of operations who said, I can't talk over the phone, but maybe you should come back here. We've had a, a, a very nasty incident here. So I went back into town and Met them, and what had happened is a, a bunch of saboteurs, small bunch, had got into our, our, one of our main air force bases down in Guelo, down in the sort of central part of the country, uh, at Thornhill, blown up about ten of our of our really valuable airplanes, Hunters and Hawks, and disappeared into the night. And the aircraft were destroyed. The hangars were badly damaged. Who do you think and the saboteurs course, were? I beg your pardon? Who do you think the, committed those acts of sabotage in all actuality? You know, that's the, the million-dollar question. I have, have my own theory. Um, there's, no one has ever come forward. There's been no corroborated proof who it did, but there's a lot of evidence suggesting it was recce groups out of South Africa right, right. Who, had, who had previous connections to Rhodesia. Um, because all the, the Salute Scouts and SAS, a lot of them were absorbed into, I believe it was six recce in South Africa. Yeah, I think a lot of the guys went down there. I'd be very surprised if any of them decided to go on a mission like that, but who knows? You know, there were people who, who were unhappy with the way things had gone. Um, I, I denied that to myself for a long time because I said, you know, I'd been on staff course in South Africa, which is a, a, a course that if you graduate from it, it equips you for, for promotion to general rank. You have to go through that if you're ever going to get to general rank. And I knew a lot of the guys who were in senior positions in the South African forces then. I knew also that during our training, it was emphasized that we needed stability in the country. So I couldn't imagine that any of the generals that I knew who'd been through all this training 
would promote a crazy operation like that to create instability on your, on your neighboring country. I mean, that makes no sense to me, and it never has. So I don't know how that operation was authorized. When we were operating externally, we had to get authorization from cabinet. And I imagine the South Africans had the same uh, requirements that they would have to have, have an external authorization. I touch on it in the book, but I really can't 100% corroborate it, but there's a lot of evidence to support my point of view. Interesting. Okay, so uh, you were called into work, and uh, and, then, and what happened from there? Well, there were these um, three black central intelligence officers, they were called in those days, and they said they wanted to go home and look at stuff from me, and I said, well, sure, you can come home. What, what is it you want? I, is there stuff I can help you find? And they sort of sneered and giggled and so on. So we were at home for a couple of hours, and they went through the house and through the garden and so on, and then they said, okay, we, we, we want you to come down to CIO headquarters for some further questioning. I said, no, yeah, that's fine. Luckily, as I was being taken away, my wife arrived back from work, and she said, where are you going? And I said, I'm just going down for some questioning. I'll be back in a little while. And, of course, I didn't show up. <laughs> what they'd been doing, these guys, is they'd been arresting lower-level officers and, and engineers and torturing them into making false accusations and incriminating others. You know, that's the typical pattern, I believe, with this sort of thing. And by the time they got to me, they decided that uh, I'd, uh, there'd been enough um, torture of these guys to make them write stuff about me. And so I was taken away, uh, moved around the country at nighttime for 13 days so nobody could find us. My wife cleverly got lawyers the next day. She said, you know, I've seen this go on with too many others, and uh, I'm not going to have this happen to my husband. But they couldn't find me. Uh, they'd written, they'd tortured more of my fellow officers uh, during those 13 days to make more incriminating statements. Um, and then um, the same thing happened to me. And I thought, well, I can, I can hang on for a while here. But then at some stage of the torture, they introduced my family. I, I forget what words they used, something about, well, we know where your family lives too. And so on. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll write these statements in the hope we can get to a court and maybe get this all out in the open one day. I wasn't at all com confident that was going to happen, and I smuggled a letter out to my lawyers when I was in jail saying, tell my wife to leave the country, I'm done for, take the kids, go and start a new life, because uh, they very cleverly set us up in this thing. So we were in jail for 13 months, um, and I must say the jails were okay. Uh, they didn't torture us or give us a hard time there. The only people who gave us a hard time were the so-called secret police, the central intelligence people. And uh, they did give us a hard time. Anyway, we had this trial. Uh, they were already could, arrested. Is there any way? I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Is there, is there any way you could expand on that, though? What What do you mean exactly by a hard time? Because you know, I, I know in the book we talk about like some real torture that goes on. Yeah, look, we were badly treated, uh, and some of the youngsters, the younger guys, and I were, were, were physically assaulted as well as being tortured. I mean, you know, and it goes without saying that there was no food to speak of. There was a little bit of water. So, I mean, after 30, I, I think I lost 23 pounds in the 13 days Wow! Uh, when I was weighed in the prison. And, you know, when I saw my, my fellow officers, too, they all like, looked <laughs> like skeletons. I can laugh about it now. It wasn't funny at the time, I can tell you. And, and they'd been badly beaten up as well, not just electric torture. I don't know whether these goons decided because of my rank that I didn't need to be beaten up, but they it didn't stop them torturing me. So. Um, yeah, anyway, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but at the trial, they'd locked up our lawyers because they said, if you support Slatter and his fellow criminals, you must be criminals as well. Wow. <laughs> Kangaroo court. Yeah. 
and anyway, they were they were finally released. And our, and uh, our lawyers, very cleverly, our local lawyers, had said, we're going to go public with this. We're going to go public on the torch and so on, because that's the only way you'll ever get a fair trial. And they did. And that was when they were locked up and then released. And my wife managed to get this good lawyer from overseas. He was the QC of Queen's Council. He actually prosecuted successfully the Yorkshire Ripper. I don't know if you've ever oh, wow. heard of that case. So he came out, Harry Ognall. There was a nine-week trial. He was, he was masterful because uh, he remembered every name, every time, every place in, a, in the strange country while these things were going on. And he caught the uh, secret police and the central intelligence officers lying. Oh, Frequently, and the judge was just writing notes. He was a, he was the senior black judge in the country, a very good man by the name of Justice Chief Justice Enoch Dumbachena. I will never forget his name. And he was an absolute gentleman, trained very well in overseas. And um, long story made short, uh, after the nine-week trial, he had five weeks to review, and then uh, he acquitted all of us. He said these men are innocent, and the police have lied, and you're free to go. Well, the government just promptly locked us up again because the Minister of, uh, of Home Affairs or whatever said, the courts don't rule the country, we rule the country, and we're locking you up again. So that was when uh, some political pressure started to bear on the government, both from the U.S., thankfully. Very good man by the name of Senator Tom Eagleton, who took this on as a cause. Uh, even Britain started to feel some guilt about this and put pressure on. And long story made short, uh, two of us were released. We said we weren't going to go until everybody was released, but that drew so much anger and so much, um, so much, uh, so many other threats that we decided, okay, we all talk. You guys go first, and then we'll get the others out, which is actually what happened. It took about four months, but eventually we got everybody released. Everybody was deported, uh, and so we all started life in different countries. And here I am in America, and delighted to be in America. America has been very kind, very good to us. I hope I've tried to, re well, I've had tried to repay what America's done for me. And uh, I couldn't be more appreciative. A safe place for my family and me and an opportunity for my grandchildren. Well, we're glad that you decided to make your home here. And uh, I was, could you talk to us then about making that transition from, uh, you know, from you spent your, your whole life in southern Africa and uh, Zimbabwe. How did you make that transition to the United States? Uh, what, did, what did life have in store for you from there? Um. I was very fortunate to be helped a lot by Senator Eagleton. You know, I, we were put on an aeroplane to England initially, and I, I lived there for four months with friends. But we had no, no money or anything because the government had confiscated everything of ours. My wife had had a bad accident, and she could only join me after about six weeks, but eventually she did. And um, I was invited to come to America and have some interviews, which I did with General Electric and Martin Marietta and uh, Boeing and people like that, and all facilitated by this wonderful Senator Tom Eagleton. He was a, he was a, a Democrat and, and the nicest guy, and I said to him, Tom, God, why, why have you as a Democrat taken on this cause, a white man in Africa? And he said, simply, Hugh, it's the right thing to do. You were treated badly, and I want to help fix it. So after, after several months, I got a job offer. Uh, one from one from McDonnell Douglas, which was cancelled because of a, a major strike, and then one from General Electric, and we moved to Cincinnati to to start our new life with General Electric. And General Electric has been a fine company for me. I've had wonderful bosses. My first boss was great. He took me into his staff meeting and said, um, I want you people to meet Hugh. He talks funny, but he's okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
he was this wonderful guy, and uh, he he would come into work at six in the morning and start uh, before his meetings, uh, helping me with stuff, and then he'd stay on till eight or nine at night, so that he felt that I could learn the ways of of American business, and uh, I, I I owe him a lot. You were still in aviation, uh, you know, on the on the private sector side, right? I was actually supporting the military side for the first six years. I mm-hmm. was um, in a, a group called Integrated Logistics Support, which looked after things like test stands and spares and tooling for the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force. And I thought that was great because uh, I'd be working with people, you know, military people and so on. But it's actually one of the more frustrating periods of my life because our procurement system is so convoluted and complex. It sure is. And, uh, it, you know, I, I said at one time, we don't need an enemy. We, we're our own enemy. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, after six years, I got an opportunity to move over to the commercial side, which I, which I took because I didn't want to leave with a sour taste in my mouth about military. I'd had such a good military career, and I just felt bad that we couldn't help our operators at the sharp end, our, our engineers and our pilots, more more than we were, but our procurement system is a mess. I'll tell you, it really is. Uh, so then, I, then I got into commercial again. I was lucky. I had a wonderful boss who took me under his wing, and I found the whole atmosphere more refreshing. You were dealing with people who understood profit and loss, and I was trying to learn that how to how to run a business side, and um, moved out to Seattle to join the, the programs, running the programs for Boeing airplanes. And that was, a, that was a great opportunity for a few years. Uh, and then back to England to do some, I had uh, responsibility for sales in Northern and Western Europe, which funny enough included Aeroflot. And I always thought it was ironic that here I am sitting, drinking vodka and eating caviar at a, at a, at a dinner with Russians. And these were the guys we were fighting just a few years ago. <laughs> it was ironic. Yeah, such a... a, a sh- you know, bizarre and surreal trajectory that sometimes life takes you on where you cross paths with enemies and <laughs> what do you, I don't even know, how do you, how do you reflect on these things now when you look back on them? Well, you know, I learned in the case of Russia that the Russian people are great and I just came to the conclusion that it's really the politicians who screw things up. Yeah, know? sure. <laughs> the people are wonderful, and, and you know, politicians just don't get it, I'm afraid. so. That's probably true um, for all of the world. I, I think it may well be. Yeah. yeah. I think it may well be. But anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I wrote a couple of pages at the back of my book, Reflections on Life, and um, really I, I, I tried to express my dismay and my disappointment at Southern Africa and what Africa has done to itself. You know, if anyone can show me a responsible government from... Cairo to Cape Town, I'd like to know where it is. Maybe Botswana. The little country of Botswana has a, has a pretty decent, responsible government, but the rest is a mess, and I'm sorry to say that South Africa is going down the same path. Do you see any uh, future or any hope on the African continent? I mean, so often the all we see in the news, you know, back here in the States is uh, the, 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 you know, the dark continent, this dismal place where everyone is suffering and everyone always will suffer forever. Is there any hope for the future? You know, I, I wish I could be optimistic about it. Um, I have friends and family still in Southern Africa, and it saddens me. You know, the latest idiocy to come out of the, the government in South Africa is that they've now approved a motion in Parliament to seize white-owned farms without compensation. Which is what Zimbabwe did, isn't it? 
That's exactly what Zimbabwe did, and that was the rapid start of the decline of the country. So if this proceeds, and I hope it doesn't, if it does proceed, that's the ruin of the South African economy, and then, and from there, the ruin of the country, I'm afraid. The only way you can turn this round is to get a sensible government who will attract investment, get jobs going, because, I mean, unemployment is the, is the major problem in Africa, in my view. Get the jobs going, get, get some international investment, and then maybe you've got a hope of turning it around. You know, South Africa had that great start under Mandela. You know, he, he was a statesman who understood all this stuff, but he only was there four years. He was old, and, you know, since then they've had more extreme elements take over. Mm-hmm. And now we're into this latest absurdity of uh, confiscation without compensation. It's, it's, it's the beginning of the rot if it proceeds. And nothing good can come out of that, that's for sure. No, I, I mean, and it's crazy when I talk to some of my American friends here, they're like, Hugh, you're kidding me, that can't happen. And I say, well, it's happened before, you know. Yeah. It's difficult for us in America to understand what irresponsible government really is. I mean, we've had responsible government for years and years. We may not always agree with everything they do, but they are, we do have responsible government, thank God. Yeah, I mean, we're just so isolated. And, and that part of the world, honestly, southern Africa, the southern tip of Africa is so isolated from the rest of the world in general. I, I mean, <laughs> we, uh, very few of us tend to make a trip down there or t- tend to understand that region as well as, you know, people like yourself do. Well, it's a shame because the resources are endless. I mean, it's a wonderful agricultural place. It's a wonderful uh, place for tourism. It still has great wildlife. It has great mineral deposits. I mean, it's got huge resources, but they've got to be used properly. As we wrap things up today, I want to thank you again for joining us, Hugh. Is there anything else that I failed to cover, anything that you really want to get out there and talk about? Well, look, I've enjoyed it, and thank you for getting some exposure there. One thing I would mention, and it's in the book, is I decided when I wrote this that any profits that I make are going to go to veterans' organizations, and I selected one here locally in the, in my part of the world, up in the northwest here, and one in southern Africa. And, uh, we, you know, anything that we can do to promote sales, so long as people understand, I, I don't make a penny out of this. I pay taxes on it, but I don't make a penny. It all goes to our veterans, and I'm, I'm proud to be able to do something like that. So thank you for this opportunity. Can I mention one thing on my website? Please. If, when you order in the U.S., it's www.hughslatter.com. And it's better just to go straight onto the Internet. If you use a search engine, it will bring up all sorts of other stuff about the trial, about what went on, and it's hard to find the book. So if you're interested in the book, just go straight onto the World Wide Web and plug in my, myname.com, and uh, it'll, it'll give you some background on the book and how to buy it. Yeah, and I see it's available signed or unsigned, so check it out. Yeah. That's the exclusive place to yeah. get it. And, and once again, the book is Pilot, Prisoner, Patriot, one man's triumph over torture and tragedy. And I mean, this has been awesome. It's not every day that you get to speak to a guy who, who sat down with Robert Mugabe, for example, and, and endured what you have. Yeah, Ian and Jack, thank you for the opportunity. I sure appreciate it. And uh, I hope we can continue to help our vet this way. Yeah, thank you again. And, you know, I really hope people will go and take a look at this book. Um, as I said in the beginning, this is just a very unique experience, and, and this is a very unique book, of course, because the author has had a very interesting uh, adventure-filled life, uh, and I hope people go and take a look at it. Thank you, and I appreciate it, and thank you, America. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it, you. You have a good day, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Great having Hugh Slatter on. Uh, really unique guest from a unique perspective, and I think that's what we do is, uh, you know, it's soft rep radio, but we don't just have on soft veterans. We have veterans from all over the globe. Ooh, this is what makes the show is that we go and find these interesting folks out there that not too many people have heard of. Uh, you know, Tim Bax, Hugh Slatter. Um, we had Dr. Lenny Wong on. Yeah. Who, uh, his research is actually, you saw in the news the other day. I saw you posted this. That it's having an impact on the military, um, that they're cutting back on mandatory training that our troops have to go through so they can focus on their actual combat tasks. I would think that's a good um, thing. So Lenny's research is having a positive impact. You know, we had, uh, we had Pat McNamara on. Mike Vining. Mike Vining. <laughs> And just these, I mean, that's what makes the show. It's just we have these really interesting guests on. Yeah, for in depth interviews, really. Because if, you know, I don't think Hugh Slider's doing any news appearances, but if he does, it'll be a two minute thing, you know, small hit. And we got to have him on for an extended period of time. Uh, wrapping things up here, I got a really interesting email sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com, and we hope you keep those, keep sending those in. Um, Greetings, gents. John East here from Gainesville, Florida. Huge fan of the site and longtime listener. I appreciate your time reading this and will be as brief as possible. I work as a paramedic for our local fire rescue service, our local county fire rescue service, and as a flight paramedic for Shans, uh, Shans Care Flight Program, Helicopter EMS. The most recent podcast with George Hand made me realize how inadequate the awareness of human trafficking is in my field. Moreover, it pained me to think that over my years working in this field, I almost certainly have come across people in this situation that could have been helped. I brought this topic up to our admin. They responded well and are willing to help me find ways to better educate our region on the matter and raise awareness. I'm reaching out to you guys for contact info on George, which, you know, I'll forward over to him. Our current resources and education are insufficient. Our county lies between Orlando and Jacksonville. And thus, I can only assume that there is at least some degree of human trafficking crossing through our area of operation. My department is on board with helping spread awareness through our region. Also, through the hospital-based flight program I work for, I have the means to dis, uh, disseminate any education and resources throughout the northern half of Florida. With a little assistance, I think we can help some of these victims. Uh, attached is all my contact info, and he also sent me credentials. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And then he also said on here and who knows what could save lives, uh, keep up the strong work and please get Ritland or Drago back on. Uh, and then he says you could share this on air. So, I mean, the last thing I'll say, uh, to be honest, Ritland is very busy working on his own podcast. Uh, you know, I, I like Mike, but I don't know if he'll be coming on anytime soon. Uh, I I've met Drago before, but he's not someone like I have a personal connection with really. Um, and, from last that I saw, he was kind of like MIA. So I, I, either of those guys, I don't think we'll have on soon. But we do have other great people in the works. But I just thought that was a really cool email. Yeah, I mean that's the goal, right? Is yeah, get the word out. The more people who know about it, the more likely you know maybe they'll be able to help pull somebody out of a bad situation. Yeah, the pictures that um, George will post, like I, I would never have thought like these tattoos meant these women were being trafficked. Oh yeah, and the way that he explains it of like the initials and stuff like that, and then also the stuff he said on the show about seeing a picture with like stacked up McDonald's cups. It's a telltale sign. These are things that had George have not said. I would have never known. Yeah, the crown with the initials on it, the rose, the diamond. 
another one I believe is uh, the the cheetah or like leopard spots. I think that's another one. Yeah, which is a popular tattoo though. Some of all these are. I mean, roses and you know, so you got to be pretty particular about like what you're spotting out. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I hope you're not calling the cops every time you see somebody with a rose tattoo. Yeah, every time you see like a stripper with cheetah print. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no, great having George on. And, and we're going to have him back on soon because we've never had George on to talk about his experience in Delta Force. And after getting True. Pat McNamara to open up, I'm looking forward to getting him to open up. Yeah, I mean, George has some very interesting stories if you get him talking. Yeah, so he'll be on very soon. Uh, yeah, and with that, keep the reviews coming, please. Um, it helps us in our ranking and that's on Apple Podcasts. That's really the place to review it. It's really simple. You just go to the podcast app, write your review. We really could use those five-star reviews. It helps. Um, and then also visit uh, Kuna Dog. That's like the newest thing happening with Hurricane Media is uh, Kuna Dog. If you own a dog, that's our new subscription box. Uh, veteran dog owners helping us out with picking the stuff. And it's uh, Kuna.dog, and that's spelled C U N A dot dog and next episode is going to be kind of a best of compilation uh presented by harley davidson with some great guests we've had on whether it's mike vining uh chris tonto peranto and i have a lot of guys on there um unheard stuff from rob o'neill so you'll hear some cool. new stuff from rob o'neill and uh, also Ivan Castro, who lost his eye in combat. That was a yep. really great one. And believe it or not, if you you probably remember kind of an uplifting story in that after losing his eye, continues to serve, runs marathons, yeah. happened to be there during the Boston Marathon, the, the infamous Boston Just Marathon. Just an incredible guy. Yeah, really is. And I got to meet him in person. Um, and, yeah, we'd love to have him back on, too, at some point. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, thanks again to Hugh for coming on. Hope you guys enjoyed. And, uh, yeah, keep checking out our stuff at Soccer Up Radio, Instagram, Twitter, and we're out. Give us a review. Yeah. Cool. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.